Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Just Cause is really a, I would call it a vision statement, except it has additional elements to it. And there's five in particular that he talks about. One, it has to stand for something versus being against something. In other words, it expresses optimism and hope, right? It's gotta be idealistic, so which, you know, most vision statements are, it's a big and bold statement, kind of a goal. Inclusive, right? Meaning that it's not just describing what an organization's vision is, but it's really for a bigger vision, right? That others, even competitors, I would say, are invited to be a part of. It's resilient to change in technology, culture, politics, or industry. I think for me, the one that challenged me the most is that technological change. So even with the presence of breakthrough, even with game-changing technologies, the just cause would still endure, right? So it's gotta be pretty bold. And finally, it's service-oriented, so it's aimed for the benefit of others. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, your host for Horsepower to Hyperloops. And that was John Sa, founding director of Hyundai's New Horizons Studio, which is developing the ultimate mobility vehicle designed to, in John's words, take anyone safely anywhere. Think a car walking on legs over impossible terrain on Earth or the deep ocean or Mars. Applications include defense, emergency response, science, exploration, and other commercial uses. John and I and a surprise guest, Kettering President Dr. Robert McMahon, enjoyed a broad discussion about ultimate mobility, asking the right question, changing assumptions, and developing engineers for the future. So John Suh, Vice President of Hyundai and New Horizons Studio out of Hyundai and creator of the Ultimate Mobility Vehicle, which is what we're here to talk about today. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate your being here. You're welcome, Tim. I'm glad to be here. We have on Horsepower to Hyperloops distinguished Kettering grads, mostly, which you are one. In fact, I will go ahead and embarrass you and note that you were the award winner for the Achievement Award last year. For Kettering, so congratulations on that as well. Yeah, well it's deserved. a wonderful, wonderful honor to receive that from my my peers. Well, it was well deserved, and I am quite excited to have this discussion because, well, I guess like a lot of, I'm a Star Wars fan, and I was watching the ATAT, which is the All Terrain Armored Tank, I guess they called it, which were those big animal-like creatures with legs marching along. And you have developed the closest thing I've ever seen to that. And that's the <laughs> ultimate mobility vehicle. And it's really very cool. And it's out of New Horizons. So tell me a little bit about it and what it is. And, and we'll get into where it's come from. But tell us about the ultimate mobility vehicle, which, by the way, I understand is, is really the primary purpose of New Horizons, right? That's the main thing it's doing. That is a primary purpose, or I would say our current focus right now. And I will say, Tim, like you, I'm also a fan of science fiction. And I think science fiction has served a really interesting function in the world of technology. I would say a lot of engineers like myself are motivated by what we see in science fiction. 
And as you alluded to Star Wars, this idea of legged vehicles that can travel in all types of terrain and the ultimate mobility vehicle is a an attempt to realize what we've seen in science fiction for a very long time in different ways, this combination of legged robotics with vehicle design and that combination of legged robotics and wheels is why we call it the ultimate mobility vehicle because you get the best of both worlds. The tire and the wheel is an amazing invention that has allowed efficient travel over the surface of the earth and all kinds of terrain. And then when you add to that the ability to position that wheel, place that wheel in all kinds of terrain through what we're calling this legged system leads to this idea of the ultimate mobility vehicle. And that's what we call it that really. It's just the ability to go over all kinds of terrain that is difficult or possible with traditional vehicles. I guess when you think about it, mobility is where we are these days and there are all kinds of vehicles. And this is the ultimate mobility vehicle because most of the world is not roads. And that's what we all drive on is roads. And the UMV can go everywhere else. That's the idea. And, and not to diminish the importance of helicopters and airplanes and submarines and water surface vessels. It's just that most humans live on the surface until we get to underwater cities or orbital cities. Right now, we live on the surface of the earth and a lot of it is unpaved, thankfully. And right now, so the ability for a vehicle to go to more of the places that humans can travel is a something that we aspire to try to do that with UMVs. And this is not a video production, and so we don't have a video, but think a car on top of big legs with wheels climbing up over insane rocks or at the bottom of the ocean or on some foreign planet or whatever. And that's what this thing does. It's an extraordinary invention. Tell me a little bit about how this happened and why it happened at Hyundai. Where did it come from? Because nobody else is building this vehicle. I want to share a story. It really is in my earliest time at Hyundai Motor Group. And I was originally hired to start their corporate venture capital office in Silicon Valley. And I had the opportunity to meet at the time, he was the vice chair and CEO of Hyundai Motor Company. And he has a intense interest in technology. He also has interest in science fiction as well. And in a meeting with him and talking about technology trends and startups and how technology is influencing the automotive business, he posed a question to me that initially threw me off guard. And he asked the question, John, what if a car had legs and can walk? And the ability of the function of these robotic legs would to give that vehicle mobility where cars currently cannot go and thereby enabling a broader segment of the population to have mobility. When did he ask you that question? He asked me that question back in May of 2011. I will never forget that that moment in May of 2011. And I'm sitting there and I was like, I think the best I could do was say something like, that is an interesting question. 
And then we got to talk about something else and so on. And I really honestly didn't give it much thought after that. Fast forward, I think I would say it's 2016, January. We happen to be at the Consumer Electronics Show, looking at different things and on our way to yet another meeting. And after we're kind of reflecting on the technologies that we saw at the exhibit halls, he asked me a question. He goes, you know what, John? I think it would be really, it would be really cool though. You know, what's that? He goes, what if a car had robotic legs and can walk? And thereby giving mobility to people that may not be able to go places or overcome obstacles in the environment. And it was basically the same question. And at this time I said, that's an interesting question. And could I spend some time and money thinking about it to really explore this idea further? And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. You can go ahead and do that. And so I did. And so I was still running the corporate venture capital office, but I was spending five, 10% of my time thinking about this question. So I just owe credit to, at the time, he again, the vice chair of Hyundai Motor Company, who is now the executive chair of Hyundai Motor Group. So I'm talking about Yi Sung Chung, again, the executive chair of Hyundai Motor Group. And he was the one that posed that question and challenged me and supported me in thinking about it. So I just really thank him for his curiosity and the opportunity to explore and to now develop this idea of the UMV. Well, all credit to you for taking it personally, because <laughs> somebody asked me that question, I, I would have probably said, well, what if pigs had wings? And then I <laughs> ordered another beer. But you took it seriously. As you said, you raised your hand. Yeah. And I'm sure he might have asked a couple of people that question. Why did you raise your hand? And what happened after that? Presume, obviously, he said, yes, you can have some time and money. But why did you raise your hand? And what happened most immediately to get this off the ground? I raised my hand because, as I mentioned before, you know, this idea of science fiction, right? In science fiction, we see not just vehicles like that, but other amazing possibilities. And so in thinking about on one level, why did I become an engineer in the first place? Part of it is to do some amazing things technically, right? The application of science and engineering principles to create new things, not just solve problems. You know, I think as a side note, there's lots of areas that there were problems, right, to solve. And I think engineering solves problems. But on top of that, it's the opportunity to create something new and I believe beneficial or valuable to people and needed in, in the world. And in this case, a new type of vehicle that hasn't been seen before. And just recalling why did I get to engineering in the first place? And it was for opportunities such as this. And I think that's why I raised my hand. I also raised my hand because when you get asked certain questions by certain people, in this case, the head of a major conglomerate, you should take it seriously, right? And I think those listeners out there who are early in the career and you have somebody who asks those questions, take them seriously. And I did. And he was, again, very supportive of me working on it. And I also saw, Tim, I, I'd say this would have potential, right? And, and I didn't know at the time early on like what that potential would be, but sometimes your gut tells you there could be something there. And kind of what it did afterwards from that question, I think questions, certain questions should beget other questions, right? Beget more questions, right? And this it takes you down the path of exploration and perhaps just the final 
you know, final comment on your question is part of me is an explorer, right? I'm not exploring back in the day of Columbus or Magellan, but I am exploring ideas and what is possible and something new. And I really enjoy that. And that question tapped in me, that explorer in me. And it's been a thrill working on this project to explore new ideas. And now you're doing this project actually in Bozeman, Montana is where the labs are, right? That's right. So how long have you been working up there in that space? So New Horizon Studio has a R&D office in Bozeman, Montana. We announced that we would have an operation up there in, I think it was June, May or June of 2022. Towards the end of that later part of 2022, we had a very small office sort of as a sort of a foothold, as it were. But I would say it wasn't until early 2023 that we had what I call a space where we could have office and lab space to design and and R&D and some testing work. And it came about with the, again, more questions like, okay, we're going to build a vehicle. This kind of getting into some of the markets and use cases, and they tend to be where vehicles cannot go, where there's difficult terrain or remote inaccessible locations or perhaps extreme environments. And it's important, even in the early R&D phases, to be in the place and close to those environments where the eventual product will operate. And it's maybe especially in the early R&D phases so that those that are developing it, the engineers, the technicians, the other people, they have have an innate sense of the potential use cases and environments and operation situations that a UMV can be in. So in Bozeman, we can be within an hour or less, but really an hour, I'd say, of a lot of variety of environments, conditions, and situations that we would find a a UMV needing to operate in and the people that might benefit and or use such a product. And so that's why we're there. We still have an office in Silicon Valley. That said, the goal is to have the bulk, I would say, of our R&D and design work happening in Montana. So you've got a lot of mountains up there. You've got a lot of rocky terrain, a lot of tough terrain. How many people you got up there at the labs? Currently, we have six full-time and two part-time people right now. Well, so tell me a little bit, and we've touched on it just in in talking, uh, about the applications. You have three or four particular sectors that you envision this, and I'm not sure which one goes first. So tell me where you see the applications by sector. Okay, so by sector, we have four. The first is national security and defense. The second is science and space exploration. The third is public safety and emergency slash disaster response. And the fourth one, kind of a catch-all, it contains a lot, I would say commercial use and applications. What I didn't say was a consumer slash retail market. And that's because that I think can be a great one. It's just, a you know, I think it requires a lot more mature technology to get there. But that is definitely an area that we think is going to be fantastic eventually. That sort of personal consumer market, I think, will be will be amazing, too. So well, those are the four that we that we think about right now. We've just been joined by a wandering minstrel here in the executive offices at Kettering, President Robert K. McMahon. Hey, John. And hey. Hello. And, 
We've just been talking about the ultimate mobility vehicle, and he was just sharing with us the four segments, which were listen, bullet point yeah. them again real quickly, yeah. and we'll fold yeah. fold uh, the president uh, in. National security and defense. Number two is science and space exploration. Number three, public safety and emergency slash disaster response. And the fourth is commercial use and other applications. And is that kind of the order in which they're, you think they're going to roll out? Yeah, it is in that rough order. And because if I think about, say, defense and national security, even though we now go into a procurement cycle, if you will, but they have a lot of funding for early research, development, tests, and evaluation types of budgets, or where early technology doesn't have to be fully mature enough relative to the commercial market. And so I think about that rough order is what I think it will, how it'll happen in terms of eventual commercialization. Bob, have you had a chance to see this vehicle? In, I in have not, but I'm fascinated by it. What we've been comparing it to is the ATAT all-terrain armored tank from Star Wars. In, from Star Wars. Yeah, and they, yeah. they look like that. And in point of fact, John, our listeners can go to the New Horizons website or, or YouTube video or something, right? Yeah, if you go to YouTube and you type in like Hyundai Motor Group, Cars with Legs, or you type in Elevate was the name of a concept that we, that we showed at CES in 2019, you'll see videos and or pictures and some articles as well about that at least and Elevate was a visionary, conceptual view of what we thought the vehicle could be. And unlike the ATAT, it's much smaller. That was one of the realizations that we've had since sort of starting the team is the scale of the vehicle has to be taken into consideration. And it's not too different from hiking on a flat path versus climbing a mountain. On a flat path, it's like, okay, start climbing a mountain, you realize, oh, like when I walk up a mountain, like, oh, I think maybe I should lose some weight, you know, kind of thing. Because then your weight becomes a bigger factor, right? And so we quickly realized, yeah, you know, the mass of the vehicle it scales significantly as you scale up in its size. So right now we're at the two-person side-by-side size vehicle is what we're looking at now in terms of practical sizes of such a vehicle, right? I loved what you said about the CEO as a genesis of this. A, a comment you made once has always stuck with me. The art of asking the right questions. And I love that because, you know, in innovations, that is so often where it starts, is somebody asking the question that takes everybody kind of off the rail and says, okay, this is a different what if and destroys the conventional wisdom in a question. And goes from there. I, I love that way to frame it. And I, I do think it's the responsibility of leaders to ask those questions. And I think there's a, even if the leader might have an idea how it might be solved, like giving the opportunity for your members and your team to percolate. And also, it also helps you see how they think about problems in general, right? But nonetheless, I think the leader plays a key role in asking those questions. So I think as you move on, say up in an organization, the better your question asking has to be. Has right? to be, yeah. Yeah, right. And now yeah. what happened when you answered the question and started working on it, and we were talking about that a little earlier, that when he asked the question about what if cars had legs, and John raised his hand and said he did it, what happened then? Did people... But see, but see that's, that is a great question. Because, it is. Because, you know, the, the, the one of the traps in engineering intensive organizations is engineering... A lot of engineering is 
fundamentally incremental in nature. Yes, it's, that's right. It's starting with a with a with a set of presumptions, and then okay, how do we make it better? I always think about there's the BMW Boxer motorcycle. They started making it in 1930, and it was an aircraft. 1930 oh, yeah. something. It's an aircraft engine. Engine, yeah. And it is fundamentally the same motor, vastly improved, vastly more highly engineered. But the basics, I mean, it's the result of incremental engineering and incremental development. But a lot of innovation comes from real breaking the paradigms kind of innovation yeah. comes from asking the question, somebody who is in a vehicle company say, well, what if we didn't have wheels? Yeah. It's kind of the, okay, completely changed the presumption. And I love that about that. I really do. I love that story. And the other, the other kind of insight that kind of resulted much later was that along those lines is that when an engineer is asked to design a new car, I would venture to guess that there in no way is there written down the requirement that it should operate on a road or that there yes. will be a road. It's presumed. It's, it's presumed. so, it's, it's so, it's so reflects. It's like, you know, of course, unless you explicitly state we will make an off-road vehicle, right? Mm -hmm. But Usually, people assume, of course, there's a road because you can't. I mean, I can, I mean, it'd be fun to experiment to do like you design a hey, hey, design this new sedan, right? A new car, right? And then towards the end of the design cycle, you say, Oh, by the way, this is not going to operate in a road, right? Yeah, I can imagine the look on the engineer's faces, <laughs> right? <laughs> At that point, what do you mean there's no road? And the so, that's the thing. assumption is not doesn't hold, that's right. But because we assume all of the, the presence of roads, we just design things in a certain way, right? That we just assume that your suspension will only need three, maybe four inches of travel is good enough, right? It only has to handle so much vibration, you know, is good enough. But I was, you know, mentioned earlier that, you know, most of the world is not paved, you know, thankfully, or, or even the presence of a road. And yet, not that we need to travel on every square inch of that land. However, there is lots that we need to be doing on that land to manage it better, all kinds of things, right? Whether it's agriculture or managing animals or managing the ecosystem, what have you, right? I think there's a lot of things that we, we need to be doing in those areas and having mobility. And right now, this is where the horse and the mule still reign supreme, right? We kind of kick them off yeah. at once, right? Yeah. But they're still needed in those areas. Now, will you be able to operate in the deep ocean? That's a great question, right? And I think the answer is yes. And as I've been looking at videos of animals like crabs and octopus they kind of just like crawl around on the ground so i you know, in my assumption oh if you can just be like a fish but no there, there are times you need to be falling on the ground a lot of animals do that and i think the answer is yes i think it could be engineered to do that and yet another so another exciting avenue that i have not really thought about too much to be honest with you but yeah i think that's a possibility it's one of the things that, you know, I, I really love interacting with our students because they're, you know, you know, they're just incredible. The wonderful thing is, is they don't know what they can't do. Yeah. Right. And they haven't learned, no, you can't do that. It doesn't work. So <laughs> they just go there. And often they succeed because they're not hampered by this. But they're, you know, the conversations we have around, a lot of the conversations we have around advanced mobility which this is clearly a, a part of that revolution, is that you have the convergence of some just amazing enabling technologies yeah. around this theme. And, it, and it's the sky's the limit. 
if you can relax those presumptions, because, you know, the convergence of all different types of vehicles combined with artificial intelligence and the, and the sensors and the ability to understand your environment, what you're operating in, and then process all that and fuse all sorts of different types of data into a coherent picture of the of the world. I mean, I, this is a very exciting time. Very exciting. Thank well, you. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, and one of the, speaking of, say, artificial intelligence and sensors, it could also appear perhaps different ways now, you know, one way could be, like, how do you control such a vehicle, right? How do you control such a vehicle that has all these now in the locomotion aspect, different degrees of freedom? You have more than just four-wheel drive and differential, you know, say, steering, if you will. And I think this is where, say, the ability to understand what the operator slash driver is trying to do, and the vehicle has its own intelligence of what it is capable of doing. It's not that much different than I would say being a horse rider, right? The horse has maybe millions of degrees of freedom yeah. across all his joints. And yet you control, basically control the horse with a rope and maybe your feet, right? Mm -hmm. So pretty soft controls, right? There's nothing like rigid <laughs> about that, right? You know, maybe voice and that kind of thing, and maybe pressure from the legs, you know. But in other words, the user interface is low tech, right? I mean, yeah. uh, definitely riding a horse is a low tech way of controlling, and yet you can do that, right? And, and the very sophisticated horse riders are jumping over obstacles. There's a you know event in the Olympics when I watch it is like fascinating to me, right? And so I think controlling a UMB can be like that, where the operator will have a direction, maybe a speed, maybe an intention where to go, but the vehicle is going to be taking all that data, vision data, map data, terrain data, its own data, its own condition, and making those split-second decisions about how to place the wheels and position the legs and the chassis appropriately for whatever that situation is. It's similar, again, to like hiking. When you go hiking, you're making very fast decisions, sometimes reflexively, about how to place your feet. And the more expert you are, the faster you can do it. And so it really has a level of intelligence that is an AI level that is going to be really needed. So you're right that the convergence can be really fascinating, especially as we get into the control and the yeah. user experience of such a vehicle. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. I, I remember a number of years ago, it was kind of an epiphany for me because it was the first real extreme example of this. NASA developed a series of experimental aircraft that were fundamentally highly unstable, that without active control and feedback in the way that you're describing, yeah. the plane would just fly apart. Right. You know, it would right. just come apart. And yet they were able to not only control it, but they were able to use that dynamic instability to their advantage. So it became one of the most highly maneuverable aircraft that they've ever produced because they could couple into the instability. As long as computers didn't fail, they could, <laughs> they could couple into the instability that in ways that allowed them to create aerodynamics that they couldn't achieve in a conventional sense. And so there's, to your point, there's all sorts of embedded opportunity here once yeah. you have this level of control, once you have this level of awareness. I did want to ask you about another thought that you mentioned, which fascinated me, about the just cause mm. and how that factors into your thinking generally and on this project. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Sure. So again, just to give credit where credit is due and how I learned about it was Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game. And that's his latest book. And I was just reading the, that book. One of the things he talks about is this idea of a just cause. And I would boil it down to that just cause is, is really a, I would call it a vision statement, except it has additional elements to it. And there's five in particular that he talks about. One it has to stand for something versus being against something. In other words, it expresses optimism and hope, right? It's got to be idealistic. So which, you know, most vision statements are so big and bold state, kind of a goal. Inclusive, right? Meaning that it's not just describing what an organization's vision is, but it's really for a bigger vision, right? That others, even competitors, I would say, are invited to be a part of. It's resilient to change in technology, culture, politics, or industry. I think for me, the one that challenged me the most is that technological change. So even with the presence of breakthrough, even with game-changing technologies, the just cause would still endure, right? So it's got to be pretty bold. And finally, it's service-oriented, so it's aimed for the benefit of others. So when I thought about all that and to something serve as a just cause statement, I took the Hyundai Motor Group vision statement, which is progress for humanity. And then I put a subtitle on that, which is that anyone can safely travel anywhere. So if I put the two together, the Hyundai Motor Group vision is progress for humanity, which means that anyone can travel safely anywhere. Yeah. And if you take those words, I mean them literally. Anyone, yeah. who is anyone? Anyone is anyone can safely travel anywhere. And where is anywhere? Anywhere you can possibly imagine. Do you mean to the next galaxy? Yes, to the next galaxy, <laughs> safely, right? And it's like, John, it's next to impossible. It's like, yeah, for my brain, it's pretty impossible. But that's the point of a just cause, right? It's a so big and bold that we try to do that. And really, I think doing that, we kind of lift this up from the present moment or the situation and think longer term and to think to really challenge ourselves, right? And that's why Tim, you said earlier is that, yes, the ultimate mobility vehicle, the UMV is our focus, but it's our focus for now. 10 years from now, or a few years from now, if you talk to, I may be doing something different, but right now the ultimate mobility vehicle is occupying, you know, my time and my thinking and our, and our effort for now. But that's why I named New Horizon Studio, New Horizon Studio, not, the UMB center or the UMB lab, because that would contain us to a certain thing and it would limit us to, because once we achieve the UMB, then what, right? So with a name like New Horizon Studio, it really means that we are thinking beyond, beyond. Yeah, I like it. The idea of anyone traveling anywhere safely can underwrite whatever you do next. Yeah, right. Including, yeah, you're going to the bottom of the sea, right? I have a hunch what answer you're going to give me, but <laughs> okay. the president here, I know, is one of the largest vehicle of all kinds fans, particularly if they're powerful <laughs> and fast <laughs> and uh, and that would fit this unusual. Some would say so, if it has a motor. So, <laughs> and, and he's also an early adopter. Okay. Okay. Enthusiast, so who are, you know, the first. So my question is, when can you get the president and all his other fellow tech enthusiasts and early adopters 
into a UMV. <laughs> I would love nothing more to do that as soon as possible. There's nothing like putting a product or a potential product in the hands of people like uh, President McMahon to try it because you get such feedback that you would never expect or use cases that you would never have planned in your testing regime, right? So we are thinking about that tech enthusiast, early adopter segment, and that technology adoption curve. And you know, I, I can't pinpoint a time because this, right now there's so many variables right now that there's a lot of unknown unknowns kind of a thing that I'm sure will bite me at some point in the near future. That said, though, getting in the hands of early adopters is something I can't wait to do. We won't anticipate anything next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> right. But the week after, right? Uh, hey, come on. The pressure's <laughs> off. Is there anything, and this is for either of you, that we need to share with the listeners about the UMV or about what we're doing here? Going on at Kettering. Yeah, I think one of the things I've been realizing too is that there is this, in terms of types of problems to be solved, it does fall on a spectrum. And if I take, you know, a two-dimensional space where you have the requirements or the what is needed to, in terms of solving the problem and how you, and how you solve it as the other axis or the implementation, it can range from, for both being known of what's required to completely unknown, uh, and then the implementation being known to completely unknown. And depending on where you are in that mix of the two, it does require different types of problem-solving skills. And this maybe a little bit too Dr. McMahon is talking about is learning about what type of problem you're solving. Is it one that you kind of know what's required and then you know how to do it? And so you're just applying best practices. You're applying good engineering principles you learned in school. You're doing decision matrix type stuff, whatever. But if you're getting to the more of the, if, if what you need to solve is mostly unknown and how you'll solve it is mostly unknown, <laughs> you get into space that it's like, it requires a different set of skills, right? And I would say, one, having awareness of this sort of spectrum. And number two is developing a type of team and leadership that helps you know, to navigate that space and then creating sub-projects or projects, if you will, that sort of are in different segments. Because if you are completely unknown on what you need to do and completely unknown on how you do it, you're it's this utter chaos. So you have to find a way to in some cases, redefining the problem. So you're going to narrow, uh, you have more known yeah. of what to do, even if how you do it is less known and, and vice versa, right? And so you got to move these levers around, even if it's a bit artificial. You got to ladder it. You got to ladder, right? And I think learning how to do that yep. is really important. And then communicating that, right? Because otherwise people jump into conclusions or they jump into the way they might solve simpler problems. And I think that's what I've learned myself in the last year. And I just... Didn't know I was articulating that, but I've lear I'm learning how to these things. Again, I think it's the responsibility of the leader to help explain to the team the types of problems being solved, asking those questions, setting the stage for that to help the team learn and grow. And so I think, again, leadership in this case, I think has the responsibility to, to do that, to help define that for the team, right? And I'm yeah. learning how to do that. Yeah. A lot of great innovation occurs by analogy or by reference. Mm -hmm. You know, you said earlier about laddering it. You've got to ladder people into the space and you've got to give them the permission to go there. Yeah. Right. And 
the idea of, you know, like Charles Kettering said famously, you know, failure is part of this path. Yeah. It's actually an important part of the path. It's a very important part. People have to be given the permission to go there and to understand that about it. And the most creative organizations are really the ones that encourage intelligent failure, right? Risk-taking enhances failure, but you always want to learn from that failure. It's not chaos. It's a deliberate set of excursions that allow you to define the problem. Yeah. And the challenge from an education standpoint now is that and a lot of educators call it the T-shaped individual. You need mm-hmm. you need some depth there in a skill set or in a space, but you need to have this broad perspective and be able to pull on multiple sources of inspiration and multiple sources of analogy, or at a very minimum, be able to incorporate them when they're presented to you to, to say, okay, I, I see that. And so we're emphasizing more and more and more that capacity in our graduates and in our students, because they need to be able to, you know, there's no such thing as just a, a pure electrical engineer anymore or a pure no. mechanical engineer. They've got to be able to understand the trade space that comes from all of these technologies. What's best done in a sensor? What's best done in, in an actuator versus a mechanical assembly versus an There's all of these interesting opportunities or optics or, you know, all the, there's all sorts of things that you can bring to bear on complex problems now that you need to be able to incorporate in your thinking. So it's, I think it's an incredibly exciting time. And I love your, I absolutely love your statement, anyone to go anywhere. Yeah. Because that's actually is the that, promise of mobility. That is right. That's the it, promise of mobility, that, right? That's the is promise not, of mobility. Right? We tend to have a very myopic a lot of in media and a lot of the conversation around it tends to have this very myopic. The mobility is electrification or, you know, it's EVs or it's autonomous vehicles. No, it's a much bigger yeah. thing than that. And a much more exciting thing because anyone ultimately needs to be able go, to go, go anywhere. Right. That they exactly. need. Right. Yeah. And for, for, I, so I really yeah. love that way of framing it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And to speaking of the students of the future, if I can have that, especially new college grads that don't think of themselves necessarily as by discipline, yeah. but they see themselves as applying the principles of engineering, let's shall we say, right? And they have the wherewithal to understand that different disciplines of engineering present different ways of thinking about the world, whether it's chemically or physics, electronics, or even computer science, right? Each one, right, is presenting the perspective in the world in a different way. And they kind of have this ability to have multiple lenses on, and then they can say, but I like, but they have, I get the the T-shape, but they're going to have a natural preference to solve it in a certain way. Like they're going to have a, they're all going to have, unless they're a polymath, right? They're going to have like, I really love, doing this thing with my hands, right? Great. And then dig down there, but you still have another layer that lets you see across that spectrum. Yep. And then you have another layer of maybe that more experienced manager that that can really guide and direct and give those right. deep insights, right? But I would love to be able to hire those kinds of engineers. And so they, with properly mentored, right, can then really just hone their craft and develop this 
amazing way to see the world in a different way, right? And so that's something I've been thinking about, like, you know, what kind of, for new college grads, how, you know, which ones could I seek after and, and hire? Yeah, it's an exciting time for students, but it really requires us as educators. To, it does, yeah. To, you know, the, <laughs> to frame the opportunity in a way that's relevant. And that's why I love the Kettering model, because I always say to people who aren't familiar with us is, you know, our students, when they go out and, they, and they're working in, in cooperative placements and, and, and across the globe in, the, in these companies, I said, they're actually evaluating us every 12 weeks because we get mm. feedback every 12 weeks. Is what we're doing relevant? Is it speaking to these needs? And so I think this is a thrilling time to be in it this is. year. Yeah. It really is because all of a sudden, you know, a hundred years ago, you could, you had, you had drives and cams. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, and you had to be very creative. And they were. Yeah, and they were. And they were. It was amazing. It was amazing work. Amazing things. With yeah. Drives and cams. But yeah. now you still have drives and cams, but you've got all sorts of spaces that you can play in and you can pick the right balance. I liked your horse analogy as well, because the horse is actually an incredibly complex machine yes, with a lot of AI going on in there <laughs> stuff, and yet you kick it on the side, right? So yeah. <laughs> you can bury enormous complexity. You can. Yeah. In these systems because of what they're capable of doing. I also think that John has just described exactly what's happening here. Yes, there are students who are coming out incredibly capable, not only because of their academic work, but because of their work in their co-ops yeah. and different things. But you're also building in, it seems to me, an elasticity of thinking. Yeah. yeah. So that they don't right. think in silos, which is what you, as a, an employer, need. Not just yeah. somebody who's a skilled X or Y, but somebody who can, because X or Y will be something totally different five years from now, and you need the elasticity of thinking, right? That's right. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Most so, definitely. Yeah. Well, John, I, I really appreciate your band. Congratulations again on yeah. being the engineer of the year last year. I'm doing my best to embarrass you because I know you're a humble guy. That was great. And I think that if anybody listened to this podcast, they would understand why you got that award. Dr. McMahon, thank you for oh, joining us sorry. today. I hope I didn't interfere. Not at all. No, this is fun. It's great to see you, John. Great and to see you, Dr. we will hope to see you back here in Flint at some time. Better yet, when the weather gets better, I'd like to come to Montana. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Bring my fly rod. So thanks again Definitely. for joining us on Horsepower to Harper Loops, and we will look forward to having a, a UMV in our garage sooner or later. All right. Thank you, Tim. John, it's thanks. A pleasure. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.